Hello and welcome to the May 7th, 2018 edition of Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. My name is Mr. Joe. This is my neighborhood. This is my life. But this is our podcast journey. Welcome to Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. It's great to have everybody here with me today. And, of course, it's wonderful to be with you. So, it's been a couple of days since I've been on, but I'm incredibly excited to get started today. I have a lot to address, a lot to speak about. Uh, In particular, an email that was received, I'd like to answer a question, and and it's a short email, but before I get started on that, figured I'd update you on my current state and how I'm feeling. So if I was to rate it on a scale from 1 to 10, I'd have to give it a 10. I have to give it a 10. uh, I'm going to have to slow down my speech also today, and I just started just this very second in trying to do so because uh, I am the epitome, the essence, the absolute definition of what I would refer to as hypomanic today. It's been going on since actually Friday of uh, this past weekend, the start of the weekend. And uh, the hypomania, while it's of course always Somewhat scary because we never know what that's going to lead into. I think it's safe to say that Mr. Joe is relatively safe in terms of the uh, manic possibilities and that irritable state of mind in which I oftentimes, when I was unmedicated, would end up being in that self-injurious, that uh, aggressive, that irritable Uh, especially in terms of it being a prolonged period of time. We've obviously had our moments, and I've reported on them. I've I've undoubtedly been with irritability at times. Uh, I've been bent out of shape. I've been depressed. I've, I've been manic. But these episodes, these mood swings, have lasted a relatively short amount of time. And I think, again, it's safe to say if I am going to jump into high manic mode, I have to assume because my medication is working properly that I will not be there for a very long period of time. That doesn't mean that I enjoy being there, but one thing I will say is I enjoy being in this state of mind, uh, this hypomanic, hypomania state of mind because it feels good. It really does. It actually kind of reminds me of what it used to feel like when I was unmedicated. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I would imagine that it's moments like these that oftentimes will lead to those of us with bipolar disorder to saying to ourselves, I no longer need medication because we feel so wonderful about our emotions, about our energy, about our our, our outlook on life. I've been positive just about everything. I mean, I even called my dental insurance company today. Something that's been irking me for a while has been the amount of money that I had to lay out and that I have not been reimbursed as of yet by my insurance company, and it's very possible that I may not be. Well, 
in a, in a different state of mind, I'd probably be thinking and stewing over it and complaining and it would be the end of the world. And now it is what it is. It is what it is. What's good? It's not the end of the world. Wouldn't be the first time that I've lost out on a tremendous amount of money, even though I thought I was covered for something, only to come and find out that my insurance company or my insurance coverage is not as great as I think that it is. Uh, but anyway, again, hypomanic, that's my current state. And what it's allowed me to do since Friday, if I want to look at the positives, I've certainly done a lot of outside work. I was moving, moving my butt off this entire weekend in terms of decorating and mulching and planting and just, just preparing for the spring slash summertime here in Mr. Joe's neighborhood. Doing it all without a whole lot of uh, complaining also. Doing it all with my wife present, with my little guy, uh, Mickey, walking around even though he's a little baby and can be somewhat temperamental at times if he's not getting the attention and what he needs. But yet, being in this state of mind, I was just able to find the right ratio of splitting my time evenly, paying attention to him, paying attention to my wife, paying attention to the yard work, and not getting frustrated in the least amount, the least bit. I mean, I mowed my lawn. You would think I was uh, programmed like a robot, the way I did that. Uh, a lot of energy, a lot of energy, and it was, uh, it was positive. And Although I didn't think about it at the time while I was doing work, which I think is a good thing, because if I was thinking about it at the time, it would have probably been something to be careful about. Uh, but I, I started thinking about it this morning and figured I'd report on it. And uh, it was just in preparation for my podcast today. Thinking back to my days of substance abuse... I found it very interesting that here I am, I'm able to complete my yard work, I'm able to do what I need to do, relatively productive throughout the entire process. Like I said, no complaining, no whining, just got things done. And then thinking back to my previous marriage, at a point in my life where I was abusing drugs, in particular cocaine and alcohol, I find it just mind-boggling and here's a perfect example of being unmedicated the fact that anything that was considered to be outside work I could not complete any of it without being high I remember specifically building a patio in my backyard which required for those of you that don't know how to build a patio you know it requires a lot of digging down it requires some sand work it um, requires some leveling and laying the bricks and then sanding again. And it's a very intense process. And I, I remember driving my entire family out of the house, saying, you guys go do your thing, go visit your side of the family and leave Mr. Joe here to do the work that needs to be done. And when you return, my goodness, it's going to be gorgeous. And I probably snorted about two grams of cocaine that particular day, probably downed about a case and a half of beer. And I actually recall even drinking and driving and going out to buy marijuana and then ultimately bringing that marijuana to my father's house because he wanted some as well. And I do know that my dad 
had actually touched base with me a couple of days later and he wanted to make sure that I was okay because I was so, for lack of better terms, coked up that my father knew something was up and he was very concerned about me and again, he, he didn't say a word about it to me at that particular time, but he knew. He knew. My dad's been around the block plenty of times. So, uh, nevertheless, I did all my yard work while I was high, high as a kite. And I think it's great that I could go ahead and do these things in, in a state of mind that's acceptable, that doesn't require me to get through life with using drugs. I think it's great. And I don't have to be hypomanic or manic to complete yard work or any kind of work for that matter. I could be a little bit down, and the difference is now, as compared to when I was unmedicated, think about the mania. When the mania would set in when I was unmedicated, the first thing that would pop into my mind is getting higher than I, const than I currently am and doing drugs, because as high as I might have been, it just wasn't high enough. So my brain would tell me, go out and get drugs and complete the task. If I was depressed unmedicated, I wouldn't do a damn thing. I would sit in my house and I would lay in bed and I would put my head under the covers and close the blinds and maybe I'd pretend I was sick. Who knows? Coming down with a, with a virus just so I didn't have to answer to my ex-wife. Whereas now, because I am medicated, and here is the big difference, manic, productive, hypomanic, productive, depressed, you know what? I can push myself a little bit and I could say to myself, well, guess what? You need to get out there because a little bit of extra energy, a little bit of extra exercise might actually potentially make you feel a little bit better. So you can rationalize in your brain, whether you're depressed or manic, regardless of the mood swing, reasons as to why it would be important for you to take on that particular task. So I find that to be amazing. Now, uh, talking about sobriety and talking about substance abuse... Uh, I got a couple of great emails over the weekend, and I wanted to address one in particular. No name, no name attached to this email. Uh, did have, obviously, came from a sender, but because there was no signed name on the email, I'm, I'm going to refrain from saying who the sender was based on the email address. That's, I'm going to take that as somebody not wanting to disclose and uh, remain anonymous. It's not fair for me to recite their email over my podcast, so I'm going to just leave it alone, and uh, I'm going to read you their email. It's a short one, but a very interesting question, something that I think I need to address. It says, Dear Mr. Joe, you often speak of your past substance abuse, but seldom do you speak about your actual sobriety. What has allowed you to remain clean over the last several years? And uh, I don't want to disagree with that question because I, I do feel like I have addressed my sobriety to some extent. Uh, so maybe they are right. I, uh, maybe I, I, as compared to speaking about my substance abuse, I probably don't speak about my sobriety enough. So I wanted to answer this in a couple of different parts. And I apologize, by the way, if you guys hear some sirens and noises going on in the background. I am not in a recording place that is conducive to uh, a quiet studio, per se, in terms of my podcast today. So I apologize. It's a beautiful day in Mr. Joe's neighborhood, and I want to take advantage of that. I'm taking a break from work, and I decided to come out and record my podcast. So, uh, 
In terms of my sobriety, well, let me start by saying that a couple of things that did not work for me, or at least one thing that did not work for me. I tried NA and I tried AA. And while I thought Alcohols Anonymous was a better fit for me, and I only say that because of the type of people that I encountered while being present at these AA and NA meetings, uh, AA was definitely a better fit, but my experience in NA at one point in my life, when I went to attend the meeting, I was approached afterwards and asked if I wanted to either sell or buy drugs. So I just found that to be absurd, and uh, it just did not make a whole lot of sense to me. So because of my experience there, that immediately turned me off. But I went ahead and I tried AA. And I, and I believe, based on the feedback that I've gotten, and my experience that particular time, and I only went once or twice, it was a good meeting. It was it was definitely a couple of times that I went. They were really good. Uh, it was one period in time where I actually attended for about 30 days. And I would go every weekend on a Sunday morning. But again, only a few times that amounts for during the course of a month, and I liked the crowd, I liked the people, uh, a lot of people spoke about the 12 steps, and something that I never took a part of, but for some reason, it was just something that uh, I never took part in, now that's not to say it doesn't work, I know a lot of people that found a tremendous amount of success for, in, in that, I just don't think it was the right time of my life, mainly because it puts the ball in the person's court too much. And the times in which I was confronted with going to these meetings and told by doctors and addiction specialists that it was important that I attend them, I was playing around with my medication. So I was never really thinking on the right, um, in the right frame of mind. So it was just something and at that particular time of my life, it just never, never occurred to me that it was important to go. But for for most people that do attend, it is a lifeline. It was it's 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 one of the most important things that people can can do in their life. And if you are currently attending AA or NA, I urge you to continue to do so. One of the best things that somebody could possibly do. Again, for me, it's something that never helped, uh, or at least is something that I never allowed to help in my life. Now, uh, something that did work in terms of my. Uh, I guess you could say my battle with marijuana at a, a certain time in my life and also when I was coming off of um, psychotropic medications, one of the many times that I came off of bipolar disorder and I was withdrawing from Cymbalta and Depakote and Lamictal and every other thing under the sun was prayer, uh, prayer and, and my belief in God. That worked, that worked wonders for me. And I've spoken about that in the past. So that allowed me to stay sober for quite some time. And probably what allowed me to stay the most sober, if that's a phrase that I could use, would be the nine-month outpatient program that I was mandated to attend from family court based on the incidents that took place with my ex-wife in which she obtained an order of protection against me. And I've spoken about it again many, many times. It's, it's relative to the exact situation I just said, coming off the Cymbalta, in which the state, because of the complaint, they took over and I was issued an order of protection uh, against my children or for my children against me 
because children were involved, child protective uh, or child protection services took over for that particular case. Uh, they automatically do when there's an order of protection. And I, uh, I had to go to a nine-month program. And, and what I ended up doing is, although I was only going for quote-unquote marijuana, I thought that being truthful with the people that were investigating for my children, I had told them about all my previous drug use. And at that time, I had been clean for many, many years, or at least a couple of years. I had quit. I had quit opiates. I had quit uh, alcohol. I had quit using cocaine, but I was still smoking marijuana, and marijuana came up in my urine analysis during a family court visit. One of the things that the Child Protection Agency viewed as me still being on drugs, let alone testing positive for the marijuana, was being on Suboxone. They looked at it as another dependency, another crutch. They wanted me off my Xanax, which, again, even though I had a prescription, they viewed as somebody who had a previous history of substance abuse should not be on a benzo of that nature, of any nature, so to speak. Uh, they wanted me off the Xanax, they wanted me off the Suboxone, they wanted me off everything. And I ended up ultimately going into a nine-month outpatient program, which I believe was the best thing that I could have possibly done in my entire life. It allowed me to get my life back. It really did. It was an outpatient program. I found the facility. Uh, now, granted, keep in mind that I was getting coverage through the state at that time. I mean, there was a time in Mr. Joe's life that I was so poor... I was so disabled, so to speak, that I was getting a lot of assistance from the state. And I, and I am grateful for that, especially for that particular program, because at the time, I would not have been able to afford that program, even based on my current co-pays. Let's say I had to go in now and pay the co-pays that I pay. So it was essentially a free ride for me to some extent, and I'm grateful for it. I really am because it, it allowed me to get my life back on track. So the unfortunate thing is, once I completed that program and got a few years under my belt of clean time with marijuana, once I separated from my ex-wife, and this would have been the third time, which ultimately led to a divorce, and at the same time, being at a brand new place of employment, I ultimately went back to marijuana. Now, the first few months of my new job, which is currently where I am now, they were, they were a struggle for me because I was also still in withdrawals from Suboxone. Remember, 188-day withdrawal, it led into my employment at my current job, so I didn't have a whole lot of strength. I was, I was a mess. And believe it or not, in my first few months of employment, I was actually, if I remember correctly, still in that nine-month outpatient program. Still with my ex-wife. But again, once I completed that program and ultimately became separated from my wife and was kind of, our ex-wife was kind of wandering around, living with friends, living in with parents, and ultimately found my, my wife that I am married to now, I ultimately went back to marijuana. And 
it's amazing because once the marijuana started, that's when I started to get a little bit more, uh, I guess you could say, free-flowing in terms of my desire to go out and be around people. And unfortunately, like any other place of employment, or at least this place of employment, they had things called happy hour. And I took part in many, many happy hours. But if you recall, I've indicated to my audience that I've been sober for quite some time. And even during this period of time, I would brag about being clean. I would brag about uh, the fact that I was not drinking, not doing drugs. And the truth is, I did a lot of pretending around my coworkers. And there is actually one coworker that is aware of, and to this day still knows, that that entire time, There was actually no alcohol and no hard drugs involved, but I went to, I went, I faked it. I faked it a whole lot. I actually, believe it or not, and I'm man enough to admit this, and it's sad how immature we are. We're just when we think we are maturing. Here I am graduating a nine-month rehabilitation program. I've got a new job. I've got a new life. Uh, I'm getting away from my ex-wife, which was a destructive relationship. And then little by little, you start to engage in the same activities that you once engaged in. And now I'm smoking marijuana again. And like an immature baby, just to fit in and be around the people that I worked with during happy hour, I used to fake my alcoholism and my drug use to some extent. We had a very common bar scene that we would go to. And if we didn't go to the same bar all the time, myself and my coworkers, I would have never been able to pull this off. But there was one, there were actually two bartenders that I knew in particular. One happened to live in uh, my neighborhood at the time, so I had a relationship with him. And one was just a real stand-up guy. And I told them about my sobriety, and in order to fit in, they knew exactly what I wanted to quote-unquote drink, and I actually had them serve me O'Doul's in front of all my co-workers. They would serve me, which is a non-alcoholic beer, so, uh, and I used to, guys, I used to stand around and pretend that I was drinking along with everybody else. I would have them make me mixed alcohol drinks, quote-unquote, with no alcohol in them at all. And I would pretend that I was drinking non-alcoholic drinks just to fit in with the crowd. Uh, Even shots, when I would take shots, everybody would take a shot and I would pretend to take one. And again, it just amazes me the amount of immaturity that a person would engage in. Here I am, older. I mean, you know, let's figure seven years ago. uh, Around the age of, and again, I don't do math very good. I'm 42 41, 40, 39, 38, 37, 36, 35 years old, and here I am trying to fit in with a crowd. And I would fake things, but here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. While I would attempt to fit in, here's the God's honest truth. There was no way in God's green earth that I was going to be able to have fun during these happy hours without being high in some aspect. 
So really, ultimately, I was a complete liar to everybody, really all around, because first, I had to pretend, and second, I had to feed my own addiction, and it's something I never shared with my audience, but I'm going to break it down for you. When you hear some of the things that I did, so embarrassing, so absurd, so astronomically out of proportion in terms of what a normal human being would do. And it's amazing because the whole time I thought I was clean. And now looking back on it, the way I would behave is just it's just disgusting. And it's probably just as bad as the fact that if, if that fake alcohol, if that Odul's was real beer, if the mixed drinks were real drinks, it probably would have been more acceptable in terms of some of the things that I did. First and foremost, I would crave cocaine all the time. No matter when we were out, I would crave cocaine. But I didn't do it. I didn't do, I didn't snort cocaine. Uh, but <laughs> here's what I did do. And I've never, never shared this with my audience. And it's actually embarrassing. But uh, what kind of podcast would this be if I was not out and open with my entire audience? What I used to do was one of two things. I was obviously medicated at one point in my life, so I am a stasher when it comes to medication, and I used to stash my Wellbutrin, and and although I was not on it, per se, a lot of, uh, or at least when I started doing this happy hour stuff, and ultimately I came off, okay, I came off my Wellbutrin after a therapist had told me I could live my life magically without being in mood swings just by prayer and uh, herbs and spices and yoga and this and that. And I went with it and ran with it and stopped taking all my meds, ultimately leading to me partying and going out to happy hours. But I used to actually pop Wellbutrin to help me help speed me up. And I don't know if it was a placebo effect, but it would work. I, I was always on 150 milligrams of XL, but I would pop like two of them. It would make my heart race. It would make me energetic. It was not enjoyable, I'll tell you that much. It was me constantly craving drugs, and here is one of the most embarrassing things that I've ever shared with my audience, and I'm going to tell you right now. There are many times that I report on things, and I am fearful that those of you who have an addiction or are battling an addiction right now are going to take some of the things that I do and allow it to be a trigger for you. Please understand that this should not be a trigger in any way, shape, or form because the end result is is quite frightening. But in addition to popping the Wellbutrins, if they didn't give me what I wanted, I would actually crush them up and snort them. And while I did not do it a whole lot of times, I think once or twice I ended up doing it, uh, which is why it really did slip my mind until I concentrated on this particular question that was sent to me via email. It never really came up before because I needed a, I needed the groundwork. I needed a game plan in order to bring it up, and this allows for me to bring it up. I would crush up Wellbutrin. If popping them didn't work well enough to me, didn't speed me up, didn't give me that cocaine feeling out in public, well, then uh, I would snort Wellbutrin. And I promise you, for those of you who might think it's a good idea, it did absolutely nothing positive for me. It felt horrible. It was not enjoyable. And like everything else, and I'm going to give you two more examples of disgusting things that I did in place of drinking um, and 
doing other drugs such as snorting cocaine or popping opiates. When I did snort Wellbutrin one particular time in that bar that we used to hang out in, I ended up one night being so out of my mind that I actually ripped the bar door off the hinges with my bare hands. Ripped it off the hinges like an animal. I was able to blame it on the alcohol, but uh, I ripped it out of, I ripped it off the hinges like a complete animal. So nothing good comes out of that, that's for sure. Now, one of the other instances, when I first started at my job, we had to go away. We had to go away on a conference. And everybody was drinking, everybody was partying. And again, I didn't drink. I did not drink. And believe it or not, now that I think back to it, I was actually still in my outpatient program. <laughs> so wait till you hear this, what I decided to do on my outpatient program. Now, I just told you that I was ordered to come off the Xanax. But in my mind, because I had a prescription, and by the way, they would drug test me for Xanax or any other drugs that I was not supposed to be on. Because I had a prescription and I was, at one point in my life, allowed to take Xanax in order to fit in with the crowd. Again, having the stash of medications with me, I decided it would be a good idea to take as many Xanaxes as my body could allow. So I stumbled around, I, I slurred my words, I probably looked like a drunk man, and ultimately was able to fit in once again. And the end result, well, guess what? One of my coworkers at the time, she was actually my partner in that particular department that I worked in, she found me the next day because we had to leave, we had to go back home or slash the office. And the Xanax knocked me out so badly that she found me on the floor of my hotel room, door wide open, everything unlocked, computers available, iPads available, passed out on the floor as if I was a drunk man. And really it was from Xanax. And the interesting thing is I remember having to go back home and I believe I was scheduled for group sessions on Wednesday and let's say a Friday for my rehabilitation outpatient program and I had been so compliant with everything that I do now remember calling quote-unquote sick or calling in because I had never done it I was completely compliant and I pretended I had a virus just in case they drug tested me because it was random and I remember researching and reading to see how long Xanax would stay in your body and let me tell you something, I went back the next week and they drug tested me and I, I made it. I, I didn't get, I, I mean, think about it. I could have ruined an entire outpatient program in terms of me being mandated by family court. My children were on the line. My livelihood was on the line and they don't allow for slip ups. You get one shot and you're out. Now, again, ultimately it led to nothing. But here I am thinking that I am this Mr. Sober Man with a cape flying around. But am I, am I really sober? No, I'm nothing more than an addict, a, a, a complete wackadoo that would engage in snorting Wellbutrin, taking Xanax while I'm under the, the jurisdiction of family court and supposed to be clean and free of all benzo. And by the way, 
something that I never brought up, and or maybe I have, when I was full-blown, full-blown in my addiction, there were times I snorted Xanax. Did it do anything positive? No. Didn't do anything. Just made me tired. It was the most absurd thing. And again, trigger alert. Don't ever try it. Doesn't work. It's going to make you more miserable than you could ever imagine. But there were times I remember doing that too. So ultimately... You're talking about a ripped door off a hinge. You're talking about me laying in a hotel room completely unsecured and unsafe with valuables all around passed out on my floor based on Xanax usage. And then, if you all keep in mind right now, yes, no alcohol, no cocaine, no opiates, but the entire time I was smoking marijuana. And I remember one particular Christmas party. It was real easy to get away with pretending I was drinking. Now, marijuana, smoking it, would give me a different sense. And and keep in mind, throughout all these instances, throughout all these happy hour occurrences, I was always smoking marijuana. I was smoking marijuana out in a car. I was smoking marijuana before I went out. So I was always able to give at least the impression that I was, quote-unquote, messed up. So I'd always be able to fit in, no matter what. Because I would just pretend I was drunk, or I would pretend. And, and thinking back to it, it's, it's actually embarrassing. It's so sad that these are the things that people do, the extent that people would take to, to fit in with other people. I should have been proud of my sobriety. Should have been proud. But I, I think what it comes down to is I was so embarrassed about what I was doing in place of the alcohol and the cocaine and the hardcore drugs just in order to get high and just because I was so, for lack of better terms, bipolar and unmedicated that I wouldn't allow my mind to slip into that ultimate drug abuse even though I wanted to, but yet from a manic standpoint, I wanted to party so badly that I would engage in these things. Well, like I said, I would smoke marijuana and there was one particular Christmas party in which I had an edible and it was a lollipop, and I ate the entire thing. And I remember more or less tripping out, for lack of better terms, laughing uncontrollably, that I was paranoid, that I was a little tired, that I was energetic. It was, it was a full-blown trip, and this lasted about eight hours. really did. It lasted about eight hours. Um, and what I do recall... Again, just like everything else, everything else ended up in a bad way. I became so manic after that edible started to wear off. I was absolutely out of my mind. And I recall living with my wife, which was my girlfriend at the time. And the mania had turned into aggressiveness that basically resulted in me destroying the entire apartment or the entire studio apartment that we lived in, doing damage to the entire apartment, holes in the wall, kicks to the wall, punches to the wall, furniture thrown over, knocked over, chairs flipped, tables flipped. And then here's the kicker. I grabbed a knife from her knife collection. That block, everybody's got a knife block, you know, you got all the the nice knives in there. And I grabbed the knife, took it out, 
and I put it to my throat and I said, I am going to slit my throat. And my wife being the woman that she is, no matter how much damage I might have done, no matter how upset she was, which is why I love my wife so dearly to this day, and not because she saves me, but because she has supported me and been through a hell of a lot with me. The, the, the crap that this woman has endured and yet still loves me and still stays with me. What does my wife do? She jumps up and goes to grab the knife out of my hand. And what ends up happening? She ends up slicing her hand and ends up in the hospital that night. So bad that she had to have a friend take her. I couldn't even... Or she drove herself, now that I think about it. The poor woman drove herself with her hand wrapped in a bandage to the hospital, ended up in an emergency room, and ended up having to get stitches while I stayed back. And co-workers came to help me, to baby me, to listen to me cry, to listen to me complain. And they, and they supported me when really my wife was the one who deserved all the support. My wife was the one who suffered. Because once again, Mr. Joe had engaged in something so disgusting that it's almost embarrassing to report about to my podcast audience. So ultimately, I ended up all three occurrences that I've given you, and that's pretty much it. Uh, everything else was more or less... There was a time where it became kind of stagnant in terms of my behavior. Uh, I would just grab the O'Douls. I would hang out. and There was some times that I would really not drink. It would all depend on the mood that I was in. If I was in one of my depressed moods and I didn't really want to be out and I was kind of forced to go out, I'd go out and I'd be miserable and I'd be home a half hour later. You know, there were times my wife... At the time, my girlfriend had to chase me around town because I was so manic. I'd go from bar to bar like a complete maniac. And she would end up looking for me at all hours of the night. There were no drugs involved. God only knows. Maybe I popped three Wellbutrins that night, so it sped me up enough. Um, you know, Klonopins, I had, a, I had a prescription for that at the time. So I would imagine I was popping those left and right. So here I am talking about my sobriety. And you know what? Maybe I don't talk about my sobriety so much back in the day. Because if you think about it, I wasn't so sober. Just because you stay away from alcohol and you stay away from cocaine and you stay away from opiates. In my situation, in my case, the three things that I abused to a great length. Uh, that nearly destroyed my life before I got the help that I needed. Uh, just because I stayed away from those things doesn't mean that we can't abuse other things. And when you're bipolar, I guess my point is, you will reach for anything. Anything that'll give you some kind of a high. Especially when you are manic. When you're depressed, a lot of times you don't even have the energy. You don't, have, you don't even have the energy to try things, at least with my, my situation. I didn't have that ability. But when you're manic and you're unmedicated, you will do a lot of stuff that you will not be proud of. And for me, it ended up in a lot of guilt. I realized that I was not as mature as I once thought I was. I hope that based on my podcast now, one day I'll be able to listen and look back and many years from now and say, you know what, I finally grew up at the age of 42. Mr. Joe finally made the turn for the better. 
And that involves a lot of things. That involves me recognizing that I had bipolar in January of 2018 and finally getting on medication because my children and my wife were important enough for me to realize that in order for me to live a successful life and to be a father and a husband and just a normal human being that I need to get medicated. I need to get my act together. Now, the good news, I believe that my act is together. I do. I believe that my act is together. I am clean. I am sober. I am medicated. I am bipolar, just like most of you who are listening. But I am doing all right. And I guess it takes, you know, it takes a certain amount of strength. It takes a certain amount of maturity. It takes a certain amount of experience. It takes a lot of failures, a lot of failures in life. A lot of times we think we've hit rock bottom and we don't just know, we, we don't realize that we really haven't hit rock bottom. When you hit rock bottom, you will know it. And, and either you're going to get your life together or you're not. It's as simple as that. And, and the end result that ends up happening from the not is it's never a good thing. You're going to end up dead. You're going to end up hurt. You're going to end up hurting somebody else. You're going to end up in jail. Uh, you're jobless, homeless. There's nothing good that comes out of it. Nothing at all. So uh, I, I, for the first time in a long time, I am going to condone myself and say, even though I made a lot of mistakes, I'm very proud of where I've come from. And I believe that by you listening to me, hearing me out, learning from my mistakes, I think you're making a good decision in doing so, and I'm grateful that you are joining me on this podcast journey. With that being said, if you are living with a mental illness and you're doing well, I want you to keep working hard. If you love somebody, you care about somebody with a mental illness, as hard as it might be, you got to continue to support that person. And if you are struggling with a mental illness right now, I ask you to keep battling, to keep fighting, and most importantly, to soldier on. Thank you so much for listening to Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. See you guys in a couple of days. Have a great day.